Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Alan, bringing you this episode of the Talks at Google podcast. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. Anthony Daniels joins us to discuss Star Wars and his experiences of the epic cinematic adventure that has influenced pop culture for more than 40 years. As C-3PO, Anthony is the only actor to appear in all 11 Star Wars films. And from his first meeting with George Lucas to the final emotional days on the set of The Rise of Skywalker, Anthony shares his unique perspective on a story that has touched an innumerable amount of people all over the world. Here is Anthony Daniels. I am C-3PO, the inside story. Lovely welcome. Thank you so much. That's really nice. Thank you so much for joining. I did not get that round of applause when I came out. Ah, it'll be better second time around. Hello. Has anybody here, be honest, because we're we're kind, has anybody here not seen a Star Wars movie? (laughs) You laugh. There are people. There are people on this planet who have a life. Okay. So you've all seen Star Wars. Well, so you can tell me what it's about, yeah? What, what, what would you say Star Wars is about? Um... <laughs> <laughs> Shall I go on stage? Um... Yes, please. Stand up. Stand up. Oh, yeah. yeah, why not? Um, Just turn this way. Yeah, it was... what, what is Star Wars about? I mean, for me, it's a huge part of my whole life. I mean... Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a biography, you know. Um, in less than <clears throat> ten words. Um, it's about an amazing adventure through space, um, looking after the good versus uh, making sure that there's uh, a good environment. <laughs> sorry, you put me on the spot here. <laughs> it's an amazing adventure in space. What do you think it's about, Stand Up? Um, for me, it's about family relationship and generations. Family relationship, generations. Any advance on great adventures in space, family generations. I bet you know what. what, what what's it about? Laser swords. Laser swords. We're getting there. Yes, it is partially, partially about merchandise. What do you think it's about? Light side versus a dark side? Light side versus, so we've got space adventures, we've got lasers, we've got family, we've got merch. Uh, The light side, the dark side, come on, come on, think, think laterally. Uh, it's about the Scrappy Rebellion beating the... It's about the Scrappy Rebellion. Wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> it is about the adventures of the most beautiful golden droid. <laughs> so good. So I, I hope people might feel okay asking questions. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, look, let me kick off with one. How did you first come to inhabit the role of sea people? How did it come to you all those years ago? The, good question, because that is the beginning of it all. And forgive me, um, because I've written a book. <laughs> did you know I'd written a book? So you will, you will hear me say, it's in the book, or as I say in the book, like all of those people who are on those chat shows who endlessly say, in my book, because they're trying to sell it. I wrote a book because, because they asked me to, um, <clears throat> and because I wanted to talk about maybe some of the things that you, you may not have known, some of my feelings, for instance. But one of the things I talk about is 
how I got into the role. And there is a lesson there, because when I was approached, and I say it in the book, um, to meet George Lucas about a part in a low-budget science fiction film, to play the part of a robot. I'd spent three years at drama school. <laughs> Shakespeare, all that stuff. I, I never thought to be a robot. And something, you know, hidden behind a mask. We'd done mask work, obviously, at drama school. But I thought it was a bit beneath me, yeah. and I'd never heard of George Lucas. Was he big at the time? I don't think he no, was he was wrong. actually smaller than me. Yeah. <laughs> Bam, bam. He could have been inside the suit. He, he could have been inside the suit. And I often, I did actually ask him, have you ever tried this on? Yeah. Mm -mm, no. I, I think he tried the face on once and then you put it away. Um, he was an un, he'd made American graffiti. But I refused to meet him and my agent, which is an incredibly stupid thing to do, and I'm sure you will never make that mistake of turning down an opportunity. Because she said to me, don't be so stupid, you never know. There was a missing word, actually, there. Because uh, there, there is a young man over there, um, so children. Uh, you never know what it could lead to. So I went to the office, and there's a picture in the book uh, ripped out of a diary, the 12.30, and I think on the 14th of February of uh, November, just, just nearly a few, few weeks ago now, 40-something uh, years before. And I walked in, and there was not a Hollywood mogul, you know, with a big cigar and, you know, uh, you know gross. Uh, there was George, this tiny, uh, frail little character who was traumatized by seeing pretty much every actor in England to be a character in these movies. I even, I was on stage with Christopher Timothy at the time, who, who used to play the vet in All Creatures Great and Small. And when I got the script, I eventually gave it to him and said, you need to audition for the part of Hans Solo. So he went. Yeah. He didn't get it. Well, no. It. No, 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 no. I didn't know, I didn't know that. Harrison Ford. Yeah. Who'd ever heard of him back Who's then? ever heard of him no. now? No. So. Oh, well, no. He's, uh, <laughs> he, he, I think he's, he's dead in the movie. I forget. He probably comes back as a, I don't know. Everybody <laughs> comes back. Um, so I, I talked to George and explained. And it is in the book, there is an image of a painting by Ralph Macquarie. That image, that two-dimensional painting, absolutely changed my life because somehow I became connected to it. And I don't know why. If you look at it, you'll see a little picture. But the, the designer, Ralph Macquarie, who used to design elements of aeroplanes for the Boeing Aircraft Corporation, but somehow he created this, this face that spoke to me absolutely spoke to me, a piece of art. Anybody been to the Louvre in Paris? Seen the Mona Lisa? It's crap. <laughs> Doesn't work for me. Agreed? Hands up who agrees. Who, yeah, we don't get the Mona Lisa. Time to get, get rid of it. The frame was nice. <laughs> I liked the frame. And eventually I would, for the Barbican Museum and exhibition, be framed, 3PO, peeking through a lovely gold frame, and I liked that. But something about this painting changed my life. Then the next day, they sent a script around. Uh, reading a film script is, is really difficult, you know. Um, but I got that George had made, George had written this character that absolutely spoke to me because he was always in trouble. He was, he was a misfit in a way, but a very nice misfit. And as an actor, how did you kind of 
come to find him, the pose, the voice, that's very much a part. Very good. <laughs> You're seeing this, it's coming alive. Um, well, for six months we made the car, we, we at Elstree Studios, the team, plasterers, all uh, the technicians, First of all, Liz Moore, who I speak about, um, took a, they took a mold of my body. Anybody ever had a body cast? It's not a good experience. You wouldn't like it. Well, I hope you wouldn't like it. It's like really weird. Um, and then they ended up with a statue of me looking absolutely awful in, in white plaster with every sort of, you know. Um, and then Liz Moore, with modeling clay, built up the shape that you eventually come to know as 3PO. And that took six months, and in all that time, I was reading redrafts of the script, because I had to stand there whilst people fiddled with various bits of my anatomy. And I would often be there reading the script, and, you know, people fiddling around my feet or my knees, whatever. And gradually, gradually, this, this character came into my mind, always in the wrong place, always bullied, mistreated, put down, dismissed, totally... Uh, the elements were always against him. And it really did begin, and, and over the years, really began to insert itself in my mind, that the original idea was that he would be the common man, the thread, the very classical way of, of having a protagonist, although he isn't really a protagonist, going through the story as your thread. He's holding the other end of the, the string, if you will. And he is totally at the will of the elements of, of the forces around him, just as most of us are. Whether it's a monarch, a president, a, a prime minister, life, most of us kind of bumble along, being smacked around, you know, hopefully we get to the other end. And he really is a common thread character, so we can relate to him. And then curiously, and maybe I can insert here, because in 40-something years, it has come to me that 3PO, at one point he says, sometimes I just don't understand human behavior. And that appeals to quite a large section of the audience. <laughs> not specifically today, um, who, who, who find life um, not, not exactly easy to be socially integrated. Because 3PO is constantly confused by the behavior of humans to, to each other. And, and I think a lot of us, including me, can relate to that. Um, there's a wonderful point in the book where, well, you've worked with 11 films, so a lot of directors, different leadership styles, different interactions they have with cast, with crew. There's a point where in The Force Awakens, you were asked to be the assistant director for the other droids. And so I would love to know what leadership aspects you took from those directors you worked with when you were in charge of droid actors? Oh, to be in charge, yes. Mm. <laughs> Wonderful. You know, I, I talk at one point of, uh, dressed up as 3PO, conducting the London Symphony Orchestra at the Albert Hall down the road there. And when I came on stage eventually, and you can read, um, I came up onto the podium and the audience, just like you today, relived that moment for me, except there were, what, 8,000 people there, uh, up around in this rotunda. The, the welcome was stupendous. And then I turned my back to face the, audience, uh, the orchestra and the cutoff was, ah, oh, that feeling of power. I silenced thousands of people just by, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I promised I wouldn't do that, didn't I? <laughs> um, so 
I didn't have much to do. 3PO didn't have much to do in the uh, the Force Awakens. Yes, yeah. Oh no, it was in the uh, Last Jedi. Oh, I think. Yeah. Um, and they came to me and said, uh, you know, would you tr would you give a master class in how to be a, in a robot suit? Because uh, we've got all these waiters. And I thought, well, that's fun. And we had enormous fun playing around and playing with props and so on. And then they said, would you come on the set and be an assistant director for the droid waiters? Each one of them had two, two handlers to look after them. But suddenly, I, after all these years of being looked after myself, I realized that I knew what it was like to be inside something weird and to be totally dependent on other people for, for anything. Remembering that on the first day, and I mentioned it, when they screwed me into this costume, I suddenly had this awful, terrifying, and I put it aside, I cannot get out of this. I am locked into metal and, and fiberglass. I have to beat myself on a rock to make anything happen. And suddenly I was looking after people who were in the same condition. And it felt good because I could suddenly give back. And you know what it's like on a film set. I'm sure you've seen enough. There may be a hundred people, and I'm thinking of a particular scene, there in front of the camera. But turn your back behind the camera, there's even more. And I was one of those people. And watching, and one of the great breakthroughs in cinematography is, on the original Star Wars, there was only one man with his eye to the camera. And George would have to say, you know, cut, how was that? And the guy would go, hmm, good. <laughs> or he would say, um, hair in the gate. Anybody know what hair in the gate means? Yes, sir, at the back, project. A silver film that's been kind of sheared off. A sliver of film that's been sheared off very, very nearly right. <laughs> but not quite. It's a, it's a bit of the, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, the, the, the paint on the celluloid is scratched off. And it, you see it, little black wavy line. And that's called hair in the gate. And I only realized after a few weeks, I kept thinking, who the heck is leaning over the camera with their hair going? <laughs> I was so naive, I didn't, I didn't know. And then, of course, it's not only a flutter of that, it's like, uh, cut, how was that? Uh, hair in the gate. Okay, go again. It means the actor was rubbish. Got to do it again, okay. It's a very nice way of being gentle to an actor. So there I was being, for the first time, honestly, part of a team because you had all the waiters stretched out around the James Bond stage, the 007 stage at Pinewood. Five actors, and I'm looking desperately. But the great thing is these days, <clears throat> there isn't just the guy with the camera. You now have big uh, plasma screens around the set where everybody can see exactly what the camera is seeing. So whether your hair or makeup or special effects or, or costume or scenery, you can see how your little bit of this film is working and you can run in and fix it. And I would run in and say, uh, when they say action, count to 10 before moving off because you're being masked by this character. It was exhausting, but so good. And one of the key elements for me I've been in all of these films and I've been with uh, various sectors of the story and so on, R2 or Harrison, uh, Han Solo or Luke Skywalker, but always, to be honest, slightly isolated in, in, this, in this suit, slightly unable to relax, not to be able to have eye contact, proper eye contact with people. And I, suddenly the, 
the change of being part of a crew, part of a costume and effects crew, it felt really good as we kind of ran into battle in between takes. And, you know, I've had a remarkable job being 3PO, but that final element was never quite there. It's wonderful in the next film, which we can talk about in a minute, but um, part of the job of, of being 3PO is to be isolated. Even when we're doing a radio series or something like that, I'm in a glass box, so my voice can be actually separated. So I'm the character of C-3PO, but then there is a tiny amount of adjustment to the EQ and um, a certain amount of digital delay, which makes him sound slightly more robotic than I would normally. Okay. Um, but to be part of a, a team really was a magical experience. Great, great. Well, look, I could ask you questions all day, but we have a, an amazing audience here. So, uh, please wait for um, Mike. Hang on, no, let me. We're going to run out. Grab this one. Okay. So somebody is very brave over here. Where would you stand up? Where were you? Just just come here for me. Yeah. Yeah. Bit of exercise. Yeah. Fame at last. Fame. Can we, can we shake hands? We, we can shake hands. Great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. Give them a chance. Do you know what I mean? And they just take over the show. Yes. So for me, um, What's your name? I'm Hoy. You what? I'm Hoy. Oi, Anthony. <laughs> nice to meet you. Yeah. Again. Um, um. So yeah, C3PO is one of the uh, characters I find the most human in the Resistance because all the other Resistance is, hey, we're going to face sudden death, and it's like everyone's just going, yes, go for it. Whereas C3PO is like, wait a minute, Did you just say sudden death. Um, you are spot on. So, so for me, it's like that. that that's a very special character, and you know, you have thought about you know, being part of the resistance, fighting an evil empire for the last four decades. Uh, I'm from Hong Kong, so any advice for the Hong Kong demonstrators? Oh. <laughs> I am so sad because I love Hong Kong as a place to visit. <laughs> That's really cute. <laughs> Got me there. One, I, a lovely experience, just uh, because I've, I've been uh, meeting people who have been signing books. I've written a book, did you know that? Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, anyway. Uh, and somebody came to me about the age of uh, 30, something like that, and he said, uh, maybe he was older, and he said it, how much I appealed to him when he was a child, when he was like four or five, um, as a character, and how much I helped him. And we talked a bit. And he said, he, we used to watch, as, as I think many of us have done in the past, he used to watch the film on TV when it came out on tape, and he would be watching from behind the furniture, from behind the settee like that. And when there was something uh, dangerous, he hid, and then he would peek out again. And what helped him in his fear, in his natural life-preserving sense of danger, was that the gold man was afraid too. And if it was okay for the gold man to be afraid, it was okay for him to be afraid. And he mustn't be ashamed of being afraid. And I thought that was such a touching story. 3PO does appeal to uh, people because as sentient human beings, curiously, we look for humanity in objects. We look for a recognition of something that makes us feel kind of comfortable with a machine, for instance. You know, a lot of design elements go into modern products now to make them user-friendly. 3PO is really user-friendly. And here's the thing, he has a chink. We want to take care of him. I'm not quite sure why he's around, because now everybody translates for everything, you know, time's moved on. 
but he is part of the family. And he's slightly, he wants to look after other people all the time. And somehow that makes us want to look after him. And I really enjoy that, that kind of element of, of fan interplay, if I may. Another question. Yes, oh, that's easy. Just stand up here. You, you, no, you come to, come to me. Come to, just, turn, just turn around. Oh, there you go. Um, my son um, wears a body brace. Um, he had cancer when he was young. How, he talks about how you, you got your head around it. Because I have to force him to wear it 23 hours a day for the next 10 years. Yeah. You obviously had to wear that an awful lot. How, what, what advice would you give? I'd like to film your response, though, because I want to show that you. Is, how, how old is he? He's now seven. Oh. And he's cancer-free, so we're good. Oh, that but, is terrific. How, how do um, because... How did yeah. I cope? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is such... Like, um, one of his eyes, he loves uh, Star Wars. So how you cope might help him Yeah, cope. I... Th that's I, I remember on the first day uh, filming out in the desert when they first dressed me up in this thing, and it took two hours. I, I talk about it. And it was extraordinary as I began to lose, starting off here... Uh, well, starting off at the middle, and then the pants, and then a leg, a leg, or whatever, and then the chest, and then the arms, and the hands, and the <coughs> neck, um, and then... Oh, that's worse. That's and I'm standing there thinking, I had totally lost my body. It was, it was like other forces were taking over. And, you know, I'd never, I'd worn it for 10, 15 minutes at Elstree. So I, I kind of struggled out into the into the desert and got an amazing reaction, actually. But then, you know, had to get to work and it was like, mm -mm. it was horrible, it was horrible. And I, what's his name? George. George. So I totally kind of know what George, how can I put it? Um, I wanted to resign on, at the end of the first day. I wore that costume all day, sip of water through a straw, magically didn't need to pee. <laughs> amazing. People always want to know this. Um, it's, it's what they always ask astronauts. Did you know? How do you pee in space? Or even worse? Never mind. Um, I, um, I realized at the end of the day, I was cut and bruised and, and lonely and, and probably hungry and everything. And I, I wanted to resign, but I couldn't. Because, I don't know, um, a sense of uh, self came in, if you will, that as a professional, I had to I'd agreed to do this. We were in the middle of the desert. There were no taxi firms to take me away. I couldn't escape anyway. But something, uh, and that, I was 27 at least. So, you know, George has got to find that strength and to know that eventually it will work. Not tomorrow, not the next day, next week, next month, not even next year. But he will love it when it happens to take it off finally, mm. you know. He's got to find... And I'm going to say it, the force. I don't, I don't always use it, but since he's into, because do I believe in it? Actually, there are elements in my life that have made me realize something is, is happening, and it may be coincidence, I don't know. Um, he has to find a strength of purpose, and how you do that at seven, I don't know. But I will be thinking of him, oh, really. Thanks. Thank you, that's really lovely. Thank you. Good luck. Ah, what? What, of course, is extraordinary is that, um, that the medical profession are now matching up. So, you know, people get their limbs chopped off every moment in a Star Wars movie, and they come back and they have a robotic limb. And, of course, medicine is now, is now mirroring that. And there isn't too much real science in Star Wars, but leave that to Star Trek. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, it is interesting how, how very often uh, the, the intelligence, the imagination of movie makers, designers, writers, end up happening in real life. Because as a writer, you can do what the heck you like, and special effects can make it happen. And then somebody comes up, hey, what if we can make a better brace for this child, you know? And it, it can happen. Another question. Yes, why don't you just come up this way? Because there's a magic thing that's happening. We've got cameras here, and... Um, What's your question? Come up, come up here. Thank you. Um, my, my name's Grant. Um, I, I've been a Star Wars fan since I was like a kid. And um... <laughs> you know, I get asked, what, what is the nerdiest thing? Which is the weirdest fan you've ever met? And what? <laughs> Until today, I. Uh... <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Um, Star Wars fans are not weird. They're not nerdy. They like the story gently. They don't have to be crazy people. Um, so I do say, you know, fan is the only word that there really is. Uh, but it doesn't mean because they're not weird. They're lovely. And without the fans, there wouldn't have been a second movie. Grant. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I fully embrace the fact that I'm a fan. It's, it's one of the things that has always connected to me. Like throughout my like sort of like growing up, there's always been moments which I can connect to Star Wars, how it's influenced me, my choice of career. Um, one of the things that actually happened recently is that I've got a young kid called Oliver who's uh, seven, coming up to seven, seven on his birthday uh, tomorrow actually. And it was instead of like my moment as being a dad was watching Star Wars for the first time with him. And my, my question is. Um, with all the new generation of people sort of embracing Star Wars and, and watching it, do you find there's like a difference in like sort of their reaction and how they perceive it versus, you know, the original sort of fan? What people like? It's a good question and it's one I do address because uh, some of you uh, will have seen the original back in 1977 when it came out and you will have very distinct memories of that. And there was something unbelievably uh, strange about the timing. It just happened. It happened because George pushed to make his, his little script, and it came out eventually in 1977, where the film industry wasn't that happy and experienced, Vietnam War, all that kind of thing. And suddenly here was a family, child-friendly story based on, as you know, on ancient myths and whatever. And time moved on, and we did eventually. Ah, and because people liked it, it wasn't a one-off film after all. It wasn't the Star Wars or the adventures of Luke Sky uh, Starkiller, as it was first um, uh, named. It was Star Wars. And it was so good that they then put a number on it, four, uh, and one V, just to make it look old and proper and everything and important. And then we made V, and then we made V1. I got 14% in O-level Latin. I struggle with the names of these films, okay? That was a long time ago. And so at the end of number six, well, that was it, wasn't it? And I said goodbye quite happily, really. And then years passed, 14 years passed, and suddenly we come to number one. And that was a real surprise, and we go on to number two and number three. So these were the prequels, a word nobody had heard in those days, the prequels. And us older people, us snotty older people, thought, ew, they're a bit rubbish, aren't they? They're not, they're not like the originals, which we saw all these years ago. I meet people now who've grown up who adore the prequels, who adore Jar Jar Binks. 
brilliantly played at George's direction. Uh, Rob, I think you asked me about directors. George said to Ahmed Best, a very skilled, intelligent actor, comedian, bright as anything, uh, you know, I, I want you to make this kind of George um, character, you know. <laughs> and Ahmed did it. Now, to us older, snottier uh, film girls, it didn't work. But now I'm meeting people of an age who adore Jar Jar, who adore the things. My kid loves him. There you go. There you go. Um, because George was very actually adept at aiming uh, at a certain audience level. Just because the snotty ones amongst us uh, were a bit like that didn't make it a bad movie, made it a very good movie. I could have done without the political stuff on the roll-up, you know, it's like, mm, I don't know what's going on. The real, the real strangeness for me was, as I say, meeting George at Leaveson Studios to talk about episode one. And he said, um, yeah, 3PO is um, created by Anakin. And I thought that was really nice because Alec Guinness had been so nice to me, so kind, so whatever. Literally, it was three days later, I realized Anakin was not played by Alec Guinness. Alec, uh, uh, Anakin, was in fact Darth Vader. 3PO was created by Darth Vader. <laughs> My. <laughs> he doesn't know, don't tell, don't tell. <laughs> so is it fun sharing? It's honestly, if, if everyone gets a chance to watch something with someone with experiencing it the first time, it was kind of like that was my chance to experience Star Wars again for the first time. And honestly, I can't wait to do it with my next kid and my daughter, who's one when she's older. She's, she's going to be getting a Star Wars episode, whether she likes it or not. <laughs> it is amazing how, it, how it's gone across. Thank you so much. Gone across so many families. So many people tell me about the seminal moment. They, their dad talked them often. But actually, lately, it's mum who's... Uh, twice yesterday, two people said, it was mum who took them. And I said, well, well, dad, oh, he's not interested. So you never know uh, how the dynamics work. Another question. Yes, would you like to come up here? There we go. Hi, Natalia. Natalia. Um, I've heard that some uh, actors usually say that I never watch my own movies. So what about you? Have you ever watched your movies? And if yes, <laughs> what was your reaction? How did you um, the uh, it, it's a very good question because it's like reading reviews. It's kind of better not to, really. Uh, but I've, I've watched them technically sometimes. Um, and you have to realize, so, it was so long ago that a video wasn't available. Uh, if you wanted to see a film, you had to go and see it on a big screen. And uh, that was great, and it made for a very cohesive audience experience. And that felt to the kind of uh, the whole product going viral, not a, not a phrased use at that time, but it did go viral. And part of it was because people collectively saw it in, in the Odeon or whatever, or the classic theater. And they could relate to each other and discuss dark side, light side, Vader, uh, the princess, whatever, the droids. Um, and it became a collective experience, very, very important. Um, then video came in. And this was total joy, because what? What could you do with video? You could fast forward the bits you weren't in. <laughs> Makes a heck of a difference, I tell you. Um, so sometimes I watch <clears throat> myself to see <clears throat> pardon me, what works and what doesn't work. But for the most part, no, I don't really look, because I'm embarrassed, you know. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you fast forward the bits you, you don't? No, not really. I love all of them. You love all of them. And who's your favourite character? Han Solo. Han Solo. <laughs> I'll, 
I've come all the way here today. Where's bloody Harrison Ford? He didn't turn up. Uh, I have a question. Uh, what do you think about this new trend of uh, new uh, small lovable robots <laughs> that uh, in the new franchise uh, are coming up now? And um, do you think they focus more on selling merchandise than developing nice characters like yours was? I love you, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> sorry. We haven't rehearsed this, have we? No. Um, uh, the lovable robots. One of the, sit down for a second. Um, one of the things you have to realize, and you can read it in the book. Did you know I've written a book? Um, I told you I was there for six months making, uh, having the costume made around me. And in all that time, I was reading the, the dialogue in the script between C-3PO and R2-D2, who had the character name C-3PO. He says, um, where are you going, for instance? R2, character name, beeps a response. <laughs> no, it's there. So that was happening. Then R-3PO would say, what makes you think that a settlement's over there? R2 blats a reply. And so it would go on, kind of um, in, in, in the way sort of Shakespeare had it, that a character speaks, another character replies. And you have a dialogue, you have a conversation, you have a relationship. Six months of reading this with George and the producer there around me, get out into the desert in Tatooine. I'm sorry, Tunisia. Oh, God, did I just spoil something? Um, uh, yeah, sorry, Tatooine, obviously. Um, and there I am, actually out in the sand, having that conversation. And pretty much that was day two, really. Um, and there was nothing. There was this uh, blue R2 thing, which I'd seen being made at the studio. And I'm talking, and it, it hit me that there was no reply. There was no, nothing. Where are you going? I mean, in real life, that's rude, you know. <laughs> and I'm absolutely serious about it. I can laugh now. Um, nobody had thought to say, by the way, you're going to have to do the whole dialogue as a monologue. You'd think they would have mentioned it, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, and so uh, it was very confusing to begin with. And very, very quickly, I began to realize that this was an improvisation job, that I was dealing with, with something basically inanimate. Uh, if it moved, often somebody might be in there, but often the remote controller was over there. Very difficult. Um, and at one point I said to George, you know, this is hard. Could, you, could somebody make a beep, could make a response, George? Oh, right. sure. And, uh, he, you know, we started that scene again. It was on the sand dunes, I remember. Where are you going? Oh, beep. <laughs> it was just easier. I would write the lines out. Um, but what happened then, you were asking me about droids. Uh, we come to episode seven, and suddenly there's BB-8. Okay, merch. But uh, a very beautiful piece of merch, <clears throat> a ball with a, with a kind of hat on. And that's amazing, the, the character that does tilting that, it's, it's almost mimetic, um, just tilting that top knot gives it an attitude, a questioning thing, you know. Um, 
there used to be those robot dogs that played football. Do you remember? You must have seen them. Yeah, I forget what they call little black and white things. And it was wonderful because I would watch a game and they kept going, and then they'd kick the ball. And I talked to one of the inventors and they said, oh no, they are tuning into the radio antenna around the, the, the football pitch. It slightly took away the cute magic, but you know, in my mind they were still cute. Um, the magic thing about BB-8, and I will never forget, it was on the Millennium Falcon, how could I forget? There was BB-8 and I had no idea what I was watching, how this was working. And then of course, I changed my perspective, and here was Brian Herring dressed in green, in a green suit with green sticks, going, and there's Dave over there wiggling the head by remote, and it was magical. And the most magical thing for me, really, was that in the scene, BB-8 would be here, Brian would be here with sticks going across, and I'd go, eh, BB-8, what are you doing? And Brian would go, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> and it was magic. Suddenly I was having a conversation after all these years with a fellow robot. It was great. But as I say in the book, um, the weird thing was that Brian is about my size. So he'd be going, beep, 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 and I'd just be looking at him and laughing. <laughs> oh, shit, no, I've got to be talking down. Sorry. Uh, because that was meant to be my focus. So... Um, <laughs> People have always loved the droids, frankly. Sometimes, and there is a new one in, in this film, you've probably seen the trailers, looks a bit like a hairdryer, but that's cute. Um, people love to take uh, a piece of merchandise home, and the biggest one, of course, uh, is the, the lightsaber. People just love it. And you have to think, why do people like merch? And it is a way, I think, of just extending the experience back into your home. Okay, when you come uh, to our apartment in London um, for drinks or tea or whatever, uh, you won't see, you'll see one piece of merch, uh, a big Lego uh, thing, because Lego really is a creative uh, game changer, I think. Last question, maybe. Oh, it's cheating because you're at the front. Oh, is there not some poor... Yeah, guy at the back. I'm sorry. Come. Come, come, come here. Come, come, come. No, because we've got to be nice to the people in the cheap seats here. There we are. Hi. A very quick question. Um, how did it feel to take off the suit for the last time? Oh, such a relief. <laughs> uh, I cannot tell you. Um, I mean, never say never. Because do you realise I, I talked about the end of episode six? And that was like, hey, fine, it's okay. And then, of course, I took it off at the end of episode three, yeah. Um, and now, the other day, <clears throat> a few months ago at Pinewood, I remember that, and I talk about it because it was quite an emotional moment. I was <clears throat> high up on a set there, um, scaffolding, and yeah, I took it off, and, and really, it was, it was like kind of, I don't know, just fading into the background. It was a touching moment. I managed not to totally lose it. Um, it, it felt okay, and it felt particularly okay because the rise of Skywalker, this is the uh, advertising bit, okay? Uh, the rise of Skywalker, as you will see in December, is such a good film. It's so lovingly made, so clever, so inventive, so final. You had the beginning and now you have the end, and that's okay. There'll be other stories in other places, but it felt a, a good way to end. And um, it, it was a touching moment. And there are touching moments in, in the trailer, as you see. But I am here to tell you that life for 3PO 
existence for 3PO is not over yet. Well, that was going to be my final. Any spoilers for the film as to... <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure we all want to know. Who wants spoilers? <laughs> About... Uh, Aha! You see, they don't want spoilers. Uh, Get out of here. <laughs> Thank you so much. And one final question. Come here. Final question. Better be a good one. Now, this is the final question, so you've got to judge whether it's worthy of this moment. What's your name? So December is coming up. Is the saga ending the way you wished for th uh, 3PO? Is the saga ending? It's a very good question. Um, is the saga ending for 3 What I talked about uh, being a team player or, or being uh, isolated, in this film, 3PO, and you will read in the book, that I sent J.J. Abrams, you have to get him here to give a talk. <clears throat> I sent him an email, a list of instructions about how 3PO works, where he works best, etc. And uh, I'm sure he never read the email, but he followed the instructions pretty perfectly, actually. So for really, at the beginning, I was kind of part of a team, and at the end, I'm part of a team. And it, it, it does feel very rewarding. Uh, no spoilers, but as you know. But here's the thing I do believe, and you are very much a part of it, and I think I alluded to it earlier. Without audiences, without fans, there would have been one movie, one movie. And because of people like yourselves, we made a second, we made a third, then one, two, three, then seven, eight, and you're going to see nine. You not only have a responsibility for, for getting us this far, but your love puts so much into these movies, and you're listening to John Williams' music, you, you go with the feelings of it all. And I think you're going to love what, what happens here. No refunds from me if you don't. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much, Auntie Daniels. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at talks at Google. Talk soon.